Welcome to the Data Rockstars Coffee Pod with me, Kelly Peters. And me, Regina Lally. Uh, today, uh, Regina and I are going to have a little bit of a, a chat about subject access requests and just to give anyone that's listening a few tips about some of the things that we're seeing from clients and from uh, the news. Excellent. Yeah. Well, it's certainly um, been a busy few months in terms of subject access requests. Yep for us and the inquiries that are coming through. And I think it's quite interesting to set it just in a little bit of context of where subject access requests usually come from. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just in case people who are listening don't necessarily know. And I had this question yesterday about what actually is a subject access request. The GDPR gives everybody the right to access information that companies hold about you. So you can go to them and as an individual and ask them to provide you with a copy of the personal data that they're processing about you so if you didn't know that there's something uh, additional that everybody can understand about the GDPR that it does give you these rights um, there are other ones as well and um, typically what we tend to see is that in periods where there are people being made redundant or employment decisions being made where people are potentially unhappy with that decision they will often use a subject access request to, tr- to get access to information and better understand the decision-making process about the reasons why that decision has been taken about them. I think it's a, it's a useful context because I, I think not everyone is familiar with that. And I, I think not just us, but a lot of HR professionals and employment lawyers are seeing a significant increase in subject access requests. And I, my belief is that people underestimate how much time it takes to respond to a subject access request. In the summer, you know, you'll get back to it, you come back from holiday, there's no real recognition about or no real understanding more than recognition that there is a there is a time scale that you need to follow. And I think that's certainly one of the, the main things is that to please don't ignore them. <laughs> I think sometimes as well, it's about recognising them because yeah, they come right. in, a, in a way that it's almost a bit easier if somebody says, you know, I've got a right under data protection law or as is my right under GDPR, you have to give me all my data and the, the alarm bells start ringing. Whereas if yeah. somebody just says, I want you to give me all the data you hold on me, you kind of might miss that or your staff yeah. might miss that and not actually escalate it, in which case then you run the risk of missing that that 30-day or calendar month time frame that you have to respond. And that's yeah big risk for organisations because I think one of the biggest issues that the ICO received complaints about and this was true pre-GDPR and continues on on now is that organisations simply ignore subject access requests. So I think there are um, two top tips. <laughs> there is, you know, uh, train your staff in a way that they understand how to recognise a, a subject access uh, request, both electronically and in person or over uh, the phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and top tip, when you have recognised it, please don't ignore it. Yeah, for sure. And I think the quicker that you can move and understand the volume of information that's going to be needed to be sent to the individual. I know people um, who are dealing with them will often try and look to narrow down the search, particularly if somebody said, I want all the data. They'll look to try and help to help with the searching and, and like restrict what's actually, actually going back. Because if you've had somebody who's been with you for years, if it is an employee or you know a customer potentially who's been with you for years, you could have a lot of information on them. And yeah. that can take a lot of time to organise, sort through, and then organizations will try and say well can you be a bit more specific are there is there a particular thing that you're looking for or a time frame but the individual still has that right to say no they want everything and you have to begin to act even while you're waiting for that response as if they're going to ask for everything because otherwise you will probably run out of time yeah and certainly one of the common questions i get asked is 
Does that include emails, really? What about SMS messages? Mm -hmm. Who? We use Slack. You're like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I I don't want to crush you massively, but (laughs) if you're talking about that individual and you can identify that individual, then they do encompass that subject access request. And at which point they normally, you can hear the shop. (laughs) When it's just that realisation of just that volume of information that has to be sorted through. And because it's not simply as easy as, here's the name of the individual, right, that's it, I'll print it all off and send it to them, because you have to take the time to check through and make sure that there's no other individuals that are identified within that subject access request and if they are then you have to redact that information or consider whether it should be released if there's no way of of effectively making sure that that information can't be seen by the individual who who it's going to and sometimes responding to a subject access request has resulted in companies then falling foul of a data breach yeah and i think it's because they've inadvertently disclosed uh, information or they've potentially um messaged people uh, you know a group of people that have all put in subject access requests thinking they're doing the right thing and inadvertently disclosed that you've all put in requests so yeah i think being mindful that it's not just responding to the subject access request you need to make sure that you don't put anyone else's information mm-hmm at risk or inadvertently shared uh, where they're not aware that that's happening. Um, so top tip number uh, three, <laughs> I think is, is very useful. I think the other thing for me is that, and I get this uh, a question um, a lot is, well, can they still complain? And you're like, mm-hmm. yes. The reality is, is that even if they, it's just a general inquiry and, they, and they're not, and they don't have a particular axe to grind. And I think there are some individuals that put subject access requests in that, are very unhappy and even though you even when you respond to it and it takes you days to respond you think that's the end of it in actual fact they then complain to the information uh, commissioner so i think i would ask anyone that's listening to this to be prepared for a, a, an individual to complain and then for the ico to contact you and say okay what did you do about it and that's why it's really important to keep track of what you've done how you've responded, communications you've had in relation to that subject access request. And I think one of the things the GDPR requires you to do is as part of your response is to really set out key information about what you've got, why you've got it, how long you keep it for, who you share it with, but also that you remind individuals of their rights, including their right to complain. And that might seem a little bit counterproductive because you might be like, oh my God, if I, if I mention it, they're clearly going to do it. Yeah, But that is part of what you're expected to to do in in that response is to remind them of their rights and the fact that they have the ability to complain if they're still not happy and and I think if you can demonstrate at that point if they do complain if you can demonstrate to the ICO that you have tried your best to provide them with the information to be supportive of their claim and their, their interest in the data that you've got on them and your justifications if you haven't shared information or if you've had to redact information then you'll be in a good place. But if you sort of scrabble around and haven't really done it right, then that can lead to issues and problems. And I think there was a couple of things that that was really of note. It's that I have had on more than one occasion, someone say to me, Kelly, do we actually need to tell our staff that they have the right to access their information? I'm like, yes, yes, you do. They are a member of your staff. It should be in your privacy notices. They have the right to access that information. And I'm sorry, but we're going to have to tell them because if they've got to recognise it from your customers, they need to be able to recognise the fact that they have that right. So it always does amuse me when I get that question and I have to try and do a neutral face of like, yeah. <laughs> I think it's that 
it's that fear isn't it of getting encouraging people or but i think it's important to recognize that we all have that rights and yes we might be more inclined to use it if we're a little bit irritated with companies or but actually it's, it's an important right that we can actually query and question and hold companies to account about what they're doing yes. with us and that's where if you're open and transparent from the start you're more likely to build trust and probably less likely to have a deluge of subject access requests coming in because people will understand and know what you're doing with their data anyway yeah and for me thinking that you can ignore it whether it be from a member of staff or from a, a customer or any individual whose data you might have is that they are likely to complain about you because it's a very easy process to complain to the information commissioner about subject access requests and i would say if you get enough of those complaints you are going to be investigated. You may not receive a, a, a financial penalty, but you'll definitely be investigated. And, you know, people can hit the press. And there have been a number of cases where action has been taken. And I think that was last year, there was a housing um, developer that hadn't responded to a subject access request, blatantly ignoring it, ignored the ICO when they said to him, actually, you need to do this. And then they did get penalised. It did make me chuckle when we read through the ICO report and they'd actually hung up on the ICO. It's like, wow, yeah. a brave organisation. <laughs> I know. Thanks. That hangs up. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to respond. I'm like, yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that right is something that I do think, whilst you can argue that there has been little action taken by the, the commissioner in recent months on data protection, there does seem to be a, an active pursuance of uh, subject access requests or the lack of responding to those and I think for me that's interesting because I think individuals now more than ever are more aware of what their rights are mm, no right. and I think what I'm also seeing aside from the subject access request is where they feel that they've been well not when they feel when they know they've been subject to a breach they are not just considering complaining to the information commissioner they are being part of a class action case where they are taking as a group a collective stance on compensation for their breach and that and I'm we're seeing a lot of those we talked about it at the beginning of the year but you know there's EasyJet, Oracle, there's Salesforce and it continues so I think it's organizations need to be aware that individuals I think are feeling a little bit more empowered and there are a lot more privacy activists now than I've ever seen before. Yeah no I think that's fair I think you know sometimes we still hear that sort of statement about well the ICO don't really seem to be doing much or you know are they really going to find me and you see sort of cases like BA and Marriott and they take a long time because those companies challenge and there's mechanisms for them to appeal and that all takes time and effort for both sides but I think at the center of that the individual then becomes frustrated and they're looking for a quicker way to actually get that decision and one that they can benefit from and I think that's what's coming to light that the GDPR allows you to potentially look for compensation even if you've had non-material impact so it doesn't have to have affected you financially and I think that's the, the difference and some of those firms that are looking to find new ways of supporting individuals but they can see that there's a potential here that if they take these class actions forward there's then case law that supports particular decisions under the that legal framework under the GDPR which there hasn't been a lot to this point but that then sets a precedent for future cases and potentially individuals are going to be looking for that compensation for themselves rather than waiting for the regulators to go through a lengthy process and find the yeah. company at a global level which yeah. they 
don't necessarily benefit from as an individual, even if the company then have to actually change their practice and improve what they're doing about data protection. So it's a really interesting kind of dynamic that's that's developing. And I definitely think it's one that we're, pro- we're, we're not probably that we will talk about more and more uh, throughout these podcasts because they're going to continue to hit the press. And, and obviously we are nerdy enough to be mm. now. <laughs> and I think it's becoming more mainstream. I mean, I certainly scrolling through Facebook, I've seen ads for have you been part of the EasyJet breach? Contact mm-hmm. us and we'll see how we can support your claim. The same for BA, the same for Marriott. You know, they're all little ads there and it will attract people's attention as if they have been affected, what have they got to lose? Yeah, and I think rather controversially, you can see it. And I, uh, people have used the terms ambulance chasers uh, and the next PPI. Mm-hmm. But you can see if people feel that they've been caused emotional distress because like you said, there's no financial distress, but it's emotional. The claims will go in and there will be companies that will be seeking out those individuals. Facebook is the platform that allows you to reach a bigger audience uh, to possibly put those cases forward. It's interesting times for sure. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And uh, we've already come to the end of our our podcast recording for Regina. So I'm quite sure where that went. (laughs) But it'd be rude of me and I hope our listeners don't mind that we promote uh, two things on uh, subject access requests. We do have public training courses for anyone that might be interested in how to handle a subject access request. Mm -hmm. But we also have our toolbox, which has a subject access request log and a vault for you to be able to store data in. So if any of those are interested, please do email us. Coffee at dbxuk.com. And also we do provide a support service. If you look at a subject access request um, or if you get something that you're not sure is a subject access request, we can help there and help you deal with it. So um, we're there to provide help and support. And hopefully at least this podcast will have given you a bit of insight into the top tips and what you should and shouldn't do when dealing with one. So uh, thanks very much for uh, uh, having this chat with me, uh, Regina. Thank you.